Good to be with you all this morning. Hey, before we jump into the message, we want to take some time to pray for what's happening in our world, specifically um, what's happening in Ukraine and in Europe. I read this week in a headline that um, there are more people right now displaced and on the move in Europe since World War II. And I think the number is getting close to a million people who've been uprooted out of their homes and are now suddenly refugees. So if you can just imagine what that would be like, just imagine where you live, the connections, the schools, this church, everything, if we suddenly had to leave and, and we were wandering and, and at the mercy of another nation, a group of people to take us in, that's the situation that nearly one million people find themselves in. And if you've been like me, you've kind of been asking, well, is there anything we can do? Of course we can pray. That is the most important thing. And we're gonna do that this morning. We're gonna continue to do that. We're also gonna have an opportunity to give for those of you that may feel led to do that. And I wanna tell you a bit more about that. We, Providence, have six of our global partners that are either in Russia or nearby in, in uh, Eastern Europe. Two in Russia, four in other parts of Eastern Europe. We also, in addition to that, have four other families that are missionary families of fellowship that live in those regions of the world as well. We don't have any that are directly in Ukraine. But what we're realizing is God has strategically positioned Christians in these surrounding nations to receive the refugees that are coming. And I want to read to you um, the words from one of our partners, Denis Lam, who is serving in Russia, in Southwest Russia, in a very difficult place to serve, very close to Ukraine, actually. Here's what he said. He was responding to uh, a check-in from Susan Hicks, who is our director of global ministries here at Fellowship. He said, Susan and the church. I want you to know that since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, the church in Russia has been fasting and praying for the transformation of war and peace. We as believers are trying to be peacemakers. There are many victims. Our brothers and sisters in faith are forcibly taken to military operations. Brothers from Ukraine write me and ask me to pray for them. We are collecting food and taking refugees. Father, here in the middle of our service, so many thousands of miles away from what is unfolding in this moment of history, we our brothers and sisters of Christians in that part of the world who are suffering and struggling and afraid. And we have opportunities to be salt and light to these hundreds of thousands of individuals, most of whom don't know Christ. Would you, by your providence, use even this terrible disruption to bring them closer to you? Would you empower our partners and the missionary families that you have strategically placed in this part of the world? Would you empower them as they serve these refugees? May we come alongside them with our prayers, with our gifts, with our encouragement, and may your will be done on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I wanna encourage you as we get going into our text this morning to think about a crossroads moment of your life. What I mean by that is a moment in time where you had a decision to make. You could go this way or you could go a different way. And you made a decision and it changed everything that came next. To ask this question sometimes, uh, it's a great conversation start, crossroads moment in your life. When you made a decision that changed 
your future. Think for just a minute on this. I bet most of you in the room immediately, you could say, oh, there's two or three, but just pick one for a minute. And now I'm actually gonna ask you to share. In just a moment, I'm gonna give you two minutes. So turn to someone I want you to pair up. It could be someone you came here with, could be someone you never met before, but just tell them what your crossroads moment was and then allow them in the next minute to tell you what theirs was. If you're watching online, do the same thing. If there's someone in the room you're watching with, let's do this together. Tell someone about your crossroads moment, but two minutes, go ahead. I'll tell you mine very briefly. It was 2005, Jody and I were living in Atlanta. We had uh, one daughter, she was about a year old at this time, and we had been praying for a significant about a possible career change for me. I was working at Chick-fil-A and their support center, their corporate office there in Atlanta, and I had wanted for a long time to go to seminary and become a pastor and go into vocational ministry. We'd talked about this over and over, and, and it became a question of, whether we should go, when we should go, how we could possibly uproot and make this big change, this big decision. And we were driving back from my parents' house who live in Myrtle Beach, who are watching right now, hey, mom and dad. And uh, they'd retired to Myrtle Beach earlier that year. This is 2005, summer 2005. And we were driving back to Atlanta from Myrtle Beach. And Jody, Rob, you know this is what we're supposed to do. And I know this is what we're supposed to do. So what are we waiting for? And I didn't even answer her. I, I just, without saying a word, I picked up my cell phone, which was sitting in the center console between us, and I dialed my boss, Brent Ragsdale. Because I knew once I it's done. Like, you know, that would be my crossing the line, and Brent did not pick up. <laughs> but I left him a voicemail, and I just said, Brent, I need to talk to you tomorrow. And I knew he was gonna understand there's something significant that Rob needs to talk about. So I knew once I left that voicemail, I was either gonna have to make up something weird, you know, or I was gonna tell him. And I told him the next day I sat down with him, I told him and that changed the course of our lives. Now, sometimes the decisions we make at these crossroads moments of our lives have effects that reach beyond the limits of our imaginations. And I bet that's true for some of you as you just talked and shared about what your crossroads moment was. In today's text, we see one of the most dramatic crossroads moments in all of the Bible. And at the center of the crossroads, there's a young Moabite woman, probably in her 20s, whose decision at this crossroads would go on quietly at first to ripple through a family and then through a community, and then through a nation, and ultimately will literally affect the course of history. Open your Bible or your Ruth journal, if you have one of these, to Ruth chapter one. I'm gonna pick it up in verse 15, which is where Lloyd left off last time. But let me set the stage while we're turning there. This is a reminder, 1,000 years before Jesus, a Hebrew family from Bethlehem had moved away from Bethlehem because of a famine, been moved to a country of Moab, traditional enemies of Israel. When they got to Moab, the patriarch died. The two younger sons married Moabite women. Then both of the sons died. And so what is left? Three widows. The mother-in-law, Naomi, who's a Hebrew, and then two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah, and Ruth. In the passage that Lloyd covered last week, you're seeing Naomi has decided to return to Judah. She's going back to Bethlehem because she's now heard 
in Judah. And she's urging her daughters-in-law not to come with her, to, to, to go back home where they came from because she knows they have a better future there. Let me reread uh, the last verse Lloyd covered last week just to jump into our text this morning. Chapter one, verse 14. They lifted up their voices and wept again. It's a very emotional moment. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. That means she kissed her goodbye, has made her decision to go back home. But Ruth clung to her. Lloyd did such a good job last week of talking about that word clung. It's the idea of, of an envelope that's been sealed, you know, and once an envelope is sealed, you can't open it unless you're going to rip it apart. And, and that's the idea. Ruth clung to Naomi. Now let's read our text, verses 15 to 18. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is the living word of God for us today. We're gonna break the message down into three parts. Naomi's advice, which is verse 15. Ruth's commitment, which is 16 through 17. And we're gonna talk about our response. Naomi's advice, Ruth's commitment, our response. Naomi's advice, verse 15 this is not the first time that Naomi has urged Ruth to go back home. In fact, it's the fifth time Naomi has urged her to go back home. The first four times it was to Naomi and Orpah. This last time it's just to, or sorry, it was to Ruth and Orpah. This last time it's just to Ruth. Orpah has already left. Let me show you in the other passages, the other verses, uh, and I'm going to underline them. You can do the same if you want to, because I want you to see how insistent Naomi was. So here's a picture of the Ruth journal. I just wanted to get your bearings for, for where we are on this. So turn backwards to the previous text. I'm going to zoom in here, because the first time that Naomi says go home is back in verse 8. So Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return. So that's the first time. That's number one. Now flip the page. Let me zoom in one more time. The next time we see Naomi urging, even kind of using a command form with these uh, young women is in verse 11. Naomi said, turn back, she says. Turn back, my daughters. There's a lot of affection there. Now look at verse 12. Same words, turn back. And then quickly after that, followed with these words, go your way. I mean, these are all in the imperative, in the command form. And then, the final and fifth time is in our text this morning down in verse 15 when she says to Ruth, it's like, you see your sister, you see your, um, your sister-in-law's example, you also need to return. Why was Naomi so insistent five times? Because she cares about Ruth. It's not that she didn't want Ruth to be with her, it's that she has Ruth's best interest in mind. Ruth's family was in Moab. Ruth was still young enough to remarry and bear children. Ruth's story had a much better chance of a happy ending 
in Moab than if she goes back with Naomi to Bethlehem. In, in Bethlehem, Ruth is the foreigner. In Bethlehem, she would be the alien. One writer put it this way. Ruth knew she would be about as welcome in Bethlehem as a ham sandwich at a bar mitzvah. So here's a good summary of Ruth's situation. If she follows Naomi to Bethlehem, she'd be choosing the road to nowhere. That's not an overstatement. She would be embracing the path that led to emptiness. And you even heard in, in Naomi's words last week, Naomi is saying that to her. She says, I'm empty. I don't have anything to offer you. I can't have any more children. Even God's hand is against me. I have nothing. You need to go chase fullness of life, not stay with me, the one who is empty. So Naomi's advice makes total sense and it's understandable why she keeps urging and urging and urging. Do not come with me. You might think of it this way. At the crossroads moment in Ruth's life, anyone who cared about Ruth would say, stay in Moab. Do not go with your mother-in-law to Judah. All the wisdom of the world would say to Ruth, stay in Moab is what makes Ruth's crossroads decision so remarkable. Let's look more closely at her decision. Ruth's commitment, which is in the next two verses. Here's what I'll say before I put it back on the screen. These are some of the most memorable lines in the Old Testament. I bet many of you, when, when I read it earlier, will say, oh, I, I recognize that. Where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Those, those beautiful words, they're beautiful to read. It's one of the reasons you hear them so often at weddings. We're gonna spend some good time, uh, lengthy time in this part of the text because it's clearly the centerpiece of our text this morning. So the first thing I wanna show you is I wanna show you their structure and we're putting it on the screen this way on purpose because the Hebrew reader would have instantly recognized there's poetry going on here. Specifically, there are these five couplets, you know, couplets, two lines poetic device. And in Hebrew, the primary way that they wrote poetry was in parallelism. You know, they didn't use rhyming like we tend to. What they would do is they would write a line and then they'd write a second line that, that interacted with the first line. In many cases, it would match it. So look at the first couplet. Do not urge me to leave you, said another way, or return from following you. We call that synonymous parallelism. The two lines are saying the same thing using different words. Look at the next couplet, same thing. For where you go, I will go. Another way to say it, where you lodge, I will lodge. Third one, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will, will be buried. Then you get to the fifth couplet, it's a little bit different. It's what uh, we, we would call synthetic parallels. The second line completes the first line. So, so here's the, the idea. May the Lord do so to me and more also, the completion of the thought, if anything but death parts me from you. So I just wanted you to see this poetic structure. It's not, you know, normal narrative. And when you look at it in your Bible or in your, your journal, you might miss that because it's just all normal. But, but this was poetry that was flowing out of Ruth and it would have grabbed Naomi's attention, these strong, beautiful words. And it's the reason why we remember them to this day because of the way that they were written. Now, if you look at the whole of Ruth's speech, you see it breaks down into three parts. Part one is the first couplet, and it is a plea to Naomi 
to stop trying to change my mind. Five times you've urged me to stay. Stop trying to change my mind. That's how she starts. Part two, or the second section or part, is her commitment. She's saying, here's what I'm committing to. So you have a plea, you have a commitment, and then the final part, part three, an oath. She's saying, I'm so serious about this that I'm gonna make an oath. Now, the center part of Ruth's speech is clearly the most memorable, the most important, but spend some more time there. Essentially, what Ruth is pledging to Naomi is three powerful things that build on each other. And I want you to see that. So the, the first thing she's gonna say is, I give you my presence. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, that means wherever you live and stay and you know, take up residence, I will lodge. The second thing she's committing to Naomi is a shared sense of identity. She's saying, my identity is gonna match yours. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Those are the, the, the two most powerful ways to speak about who you are in that culture. She says, well, who are your people and who's your God? The final thing that Ruth is pledging to Naomi is a shared destiny. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. Each of these pledges is like a ratchet tightening her commitment up a notch. And then again, Ruth is laying down her entire life to serve Naomi. She's binding her whole self and her future to the person and future of her mother-in-law. So here's another reason why you hear this read at weddings so much. Number one, it's beautiful. Number two, in a different context, yes, but you can see how this actually conveys pretty well what's happening at a wedding ceremony. Two people, when, when marriage is rightly understood, Two people coming together to pledge to the other lifelong presence, shared identity, shared destiny. We just say it this way, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and health, to love and to cherish until death do us part. Now, the final section of Ruth's speech down here, the oath part is not often used at weddings. Maybe it should be. <laughs> Imagine, may the Lord do so to me and much more if, I, if anything but death you know, parts me. I haven't heard that at a wedding yet, but for those of you that are planning to get married sometime soon, if you want me to do your wedding, I'll gladly include the oath part in what's going on. Now, it's a little bit hard for us to understand because this is actually an, an ancient Near Eastern oath formula. And I want to unpack that a little bit for you. It was common in that day to, to use language like this. And you know, you've, you've heard this in other places probably if you've read ancient literature. And it's other places in the world. What they're doing is they're calling on a deity to be a witness of the promise. And they're taking it a step further saying, you know, said deity, I actually want you to hold me accountable to this promise. That's how serious I am about it. Now, a couple of things to note here. Number one, Ruth is already expressing her commitment to Naomi's God the one true God, Yahweh, because this word right here, Lord, 
is not just a generic word Ruth is using for God. It is the proper name of God given to the Hebrew people, Yahweh. May Yahweh, your God, who is now my God, Ruth is saying. Of course, we all know the only God. I think all those others are so-called gods, but may, may the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh, he's the one that I am making this commitment. So she's already beginning to live out the commitment that she just made in the previous uh, couplets. Second thing to note about this oath is it doesn't make a lot of sense to us because it doesn't specify what will be done if she breaks her promise. You know, she just says, may the Lord do so to me and more also. You know, well, what is it? Is it death? Is it plague? Is it famine? You know, what will the Lord do to her? By the way, this is kind of just for fun. You know, some of you kind of like to nerd out on this stuff. Some of you don't, but I think it's super interesting. So just, just hang in there for another 60 seconds or so. There are three possibilities for why these oath formulas were written this way. And none of them ever specify what the God will do to them if they break the promise. They're all written like this, kind of ambiguous in, in ambiguity. Possibility number one, it, it was just widely understood what the gods could do. And so it was sort of like in English, we might say, you and I both know what will happen if I break this pledge. Possibility number two, ancient Near Eastern culture associated such power with the spoken word that perhaps to speak of the calamity was considered inappropriate. So it would sound something like this in English. I'm not even going to say what will happen because I won't utter it. Third possibility, of course, it could be some combination of these. Some scholars believe that the oath formula was likely accompanied by some physical gesture that has been lost over time. So maybe they would touch the throat or, you know, in, in our culture, we, it's kind of morbid, but we might kind of do this. So if you imagine someone say, may the Lord do to me and even more if I don't keep my promise. That, that may have been going on as well. We don't know. But here's the bottom line. This was serious business. So Ruth is making an oath that seals her commitment and she wants Naomi to stop urging her. Commentator Robert summarizes Ruth's speech this way. In sum, Ruth decisively casts her lot with Naomi. Her words encompass both the vertical and horizontal dimensions of life. In geography, they covered all future locations. In chronology, they extended from the present into eternity. In theology, they exclusively embraced Yahweh. In genealogy, they merged the young Moabitess with Naomi's family, securely sealing all exits with an oath. Ruth soberly gambled the security of the familiar for the uncertainty of the foreign. Do you feel the world? of this crossroads decision in Ruth's life. And nobody would tell her this is the wise choice. Well, we see in verse 18 that Ruth's speech had the desired effect of convincing Naomi that she can't talk Ruth into leaving her. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Because what more could she say? You know, Ruth had, had called upon Naomi's God, like the God Yahweh as a witness into her promise to stay with Naomi. Who was Naomi to challenge that? So Naomi relented. 
after five times of pleading with Ruth to return home, thinking of Ruth's own good, Naomi finally relented. And for Ruth's part, she stood squarely at her crossroads moment and made her decision. And in that moment, she was throwing herself onto the mercy and provision of a God whom she just barely yet knew. And the reader is left to wonder, what will her new life hold for her? So that's our text. You have Naomi's advice. You have Ruth's commitment. I want to spend the rest of the time talking about our response. Because as I thought about this text and studied this text, I thought, well, it's a beautiful passage. It's, it stirs in us this desire to make a commitment like Ruth and, you know, maybe emulate her example. But on the other hand, it feels so far off. I mean, we're talking about a, a, a Moabitess a woman from Moab. We're talking about an ancient culture, talking about an oath. You know, there's some things about this text that make it really hard to connect with. So I want to offer a question that I think might help us go beyond just our factual understanding of the text, as important as that is, but, but help it to dig down in, into the underlying truth that will penetrate and transform our heart. And so here's, here's the question that I offer for us this morning. Whose will prevailed at Ruth's crossroads moment? Don't answer it yet. Just think about it for a minute. Naomi tried her best to get Ruth to return to Moab. Ruth dug in her heels and was determined to stay with Naomi no matter what. Whose will prevailed? Perhaps the Westminster Shorter Catechism can help us think about this. We've been reminding ourselves as we go through this book what the definition of providence is. I'll read the question and let's all together respond with the answer. What are God's works of providence? Let's all respond. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. Whose will prevailed at Ruth's crossroads moment? When you think about this passage in light of God's providence, you start to see it differently. Everyone who studies this passage marvels at Ruth's commitment, and rightly so. It's a model of sacrificial love and faith from it. We would do well to emulate it. But I invite us this morning to look behind the scenes. Look at the bigger picture. Who is committed to who? Who has been pursuing who? What we've said from the beginning of this series, starting with Lloyd's message in the very first week of Ruth, is, is this. There's more than meets the eye. When Ruth bound herself to Naomi, she was actually binding herself to something, someone far greater than Naomi. And there's no accident in that. 
of all the thousands of young women in Moab at this time, God chose Ruth. Don't miss that it was because of the broken pieces in Ruth's life. Death, heartache, emptiness that led her to this crossroads. And whatever was true about Ruth's connection with Naomi, their love for one another, their shared affection with one another, God used that so that Ruth would cling to her mother-in-law. And whatever was true about Ruth's own unique personality and her constitution and her past experiences that all came together to make what actually was a fairly unreasonable choice, God was in all of that too. God pursued Ruth. God to Ruth before Ruth committed to him. But there's even more. When I was studying this week, I, I kept thinking, one of the most remarkable things about this text is how different Ruth's words are from the rest of the name. It's partly why I wanted to show you how it is actual poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. Breaks out of the rest of the narrative of Ruth in, in multiple ways. Number one, think about the subject matter of Ruth. Up to this point, it's been very dark. It's been very empty. It's been very stark. Well, the narrator's writing style has actually matched that subject matter very well. It's been terse, condensed, matter of fact. It just says, then he died. Then he died. Then he died. But then all of a sudden, Ruth speaks and her words sort of float above and tower above the rest of the text. And you just can't miss it. It's out of nowhere. You have some of the most beautifully written portions of the Old Testament. And I kept wondering, how did this young woman speak this way? Or did the author maybe purposefully dress up her language years later in writing down the story? So with these questions in my mind, I came across this, this sentence in a commentary I was reading by Frederick Bush. Listen to this. Ruth's word actions constitute one of the most striking examples in all of the Old Testament literature of that loving and sacrificial loyalty that the Hebrew language designated hesed. Ruth's words and actions are one of the most striking examples in the Old Testament of hesed. What do we know about hesed? We've talked about this the last few weeks. It is the word that God gave to the Hebrew people to describe his character. This is God's self-revelation. This is God saying, this is who I am. I am hesed. I am steadfast love and effect rooted in committed relationship. God is at his core, loyal, faithful, steadfast love. And so I, I was putting these pieces together a little bit. I thought, how interesting. At the center of God's character is hesed. And one of the most striking examples of hesed in the Old Testament comes from the mouth of a young Moabite woman speaking to an old Hebrew woman who desperately needed to be reminded who God was. And so I thought, is it possible 
that these unusually beautiful and powerful words came as much through Ruth as from Ruth. All scriptures God breathed. Maybe the best way to understand Ruth's words is to hear them, at least in part, as God's voice to Naomi, reminding her that he has not and he will not abandon her. At this point in the story, it's not yet clear whether Naomi has ears to hear. All we know is Ruth's words left her speechless. What about you? If all this was true for these women 3,000 years ago, might something also be true for you? If God was committed to Ruth before Ruth was committed to her, could that be true for you? If God loved Naomi enough to speak his steadfast love to her through her daughter-in-law, might he be doing something similar for you? This is the living word of God for us today. We sing and talk a lot here about Jesus for good reason. All the Old Testament points to Jesus. All the New Testament describes Jesus and teaches us how to follow Jesus. One way to think about the person of Jesus is to understand Jesus as God's Hesed love taking on flesh. And when love he came for us. I want you to hear Ruth's words one more time. And this time, I want you to imagine them coming from the voice of Jesus, speaking to mankind as he prepared to come down from heaven to enter our world and our pain and our brokenness. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and married. The Hesed love of God and the person of Jesus brings every human being to a crossroads decision. If God is indeed initiating towards you, if that's what Jesus is all about, then that initiative invites a response. If you really think about it, your response to God's wholehearted commitment to you can be no less than Ruth's statement of commitment. 
saying yes to God's pursuit of a commitment of your whole person, your whole self. It's, it's realizing, oh, God did that for me. He went all in like Ruth did for Naomi. And the invitation is me to go all in. So our invitation to life this morning is exactly that. Two questions I want to ask us this morning. Number one, how have you responded to God's initiating love for you? And number two, are you willing to commit your whole self to him? And these are not small questions. You know, what I, what I love about teaching God's word is, is I know it, it won't be my words that'll sort of, you know, noodle in your mind and your heart throughout the week. It's gonna be little portions of the text. It's gonna be I mean, little things that God said through his spirit through this text this morning. It's gonna pop back in your mind. And, and these questions are designed to help us engage with what God is doing. Could it be that he's reminding us this morning of his initiative toward us, of his commitment toward us, of his full on, whole person. I came for you and the expectation, the hope, the desire that God would have for us to say, yes. Jesus, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. Where you go, Jesus will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. I'm going to pray in a minute when I pray the band's going to come out and we're going to sing a, a song that's going to give voice, give words to the opportunity we have met. And I hope you see it as that. I hope you see it as an opportunity. For some of you, it's an opportunity to make a decision to say, you know, maybe for the first time ever in my life, I've put together some pieces of, of what Jesus did for me. And if you're right there, I'd say, all you have to do is respond in faith. Say, Jesus, I believe what you did and I believe you had me in mind and I'm willing to, in faith, commit my life to you. And for many of us, it's not the first time we've made this commitment, but we need to be reminded because the Christian life is a continual journey of going deeper and committing more of ourselves to the Hesed love of our Father expressed in Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this beautiful text this morning that you have by your providence preserved for these many thousands of years. And we are grateful that we see in these words, not just the words of this young woman, Ruth, talking to her mother-in-law, but we see by your spirit, your voice. We hear your voice speaking to Naomi and even now through faith, we hear your voice speaking to us these words that we need to hear. And so I pray, Father, particularly for those in the room that have actually never put their faith in Jesus Christ, would this be a moment, the moment of their lives, their crossroads moment, that they would say, I'm choosing Christ. I'm casting my lot with him because he first chose me. And for all of us this morning, may we yet commit deeper with more of our heart. Our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our choices, Jesus, surely you are at the center of all of them. By your providence, we have an opportunity again to say yes to you. It's in 
the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.